0: It's such a small thing, but I think when he, like, wrote her name, like, on his arm at the end, I thought that was so hot. Like, I, like, I, like, I mean, I can't lie. This is The
1: Tea of FIT, a podcast by W27, the Fashion Institute of Technology's newspaper from New York City. We're your hosts, Prerna,
0: Lonnie, Charlotte, and Jennifer.
1: On February 28, 2021, the 78 Golden Globe Awards aired on television. Many of the nominees and winners were somewhat controversial because it seemed diverse on the surface. But was it really?
2: On March 15th, 2021, the 93rd Academy Awards had a slightly more diverse group of nominees, echoing the same issues from the 2015 hashtag OscarsSoWhite movement of awareness started by April Rain.
3: We will be focusing on how intersectional and inclusive these films were.
0: We will talk about our various perspectives on films such as Sound of Metal, Minari, The Trial of the Chicago 7, One Night in Miami, Madland, and Moxie.
2: Where do these problems of exclusivity come from and what would we like to see next? As of the recording of this episode, the Oscars winners have not been released.
1: This episode has descriptions of racial trauma and violence. Nothing graphic, but we thought you should know. So Jennifer, since this is the first time you're joining us, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah,
0: sure. Hi, my name is Jennifer. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a writer at W27. I'm an advertising and marketing communications major, and I'm also double minoring in film as well as women and gender studies. So I've obviously put a lot of stuff on my plate for myself. Um, so I've loved film for a while. And growing up, I would see my peers around me saying how their parents got into whatever music or whatever hobby. And I didn't really have that growing up. And I don't say this to diss my parents or whatever. I'm just saying how that's simply how it was for me. And I would just pretty much do my own thing. So I got myself into film when I was about 13. And I watched movies like The virgin suicides and leon the professional as kind of a starting point and then from then on i've just been developing that interest and developing these new perspectives on film as i continue to grow and live
1: okay thank you for that introduction i definitely think your perspectives will add a lot to our conversation today
2: i agree and so i think we'll go with the first question and maybe the scariest question um do minorities have to make films for the white heteronormative patriarchal gaze to gain critical acclaim and be acknowledged
1: one quote to bring up that definitely relates to that to give a little more context as to where we're coming from is this quote from stephen young who plays jacob in minari we profess that we're caught in the white american gaze and that's true but we forget that we are also that gaze the gaze is encoded into us and the last boss is yourself so how i interpreted this quote is that there's kind of no way to escape this white gaze and that could even extend to the heteronormative and patriarchal gaze and at some point I think to sort of be elevated onto the same platform as other people um, especially like white men in things like the Oscars and the Golden Globes that we sort of do have to adhere to these norms to be recognized at least at first.
2: I definitely think I from that quote I'm kind of drawing that I feel like the the white American gaze is just like quote standard in that everyone like there's different there's not the white American gaze isn't the only one which I think through film it's definitely feels like that and so when you have movies like ones that aren't about white people you have different perspectives that may not seem like what everybody experiences so um i think it's important just to realize that the american experience isn't just the white american experience and i feel like that's just something that is a hump that we need to get over but um i also think it's something that's definitely coming to light in the more recent years but yeah, I mean, we can go into the the next question. So what are your feelings about the nominees for the Oscars and the Golden Globes? So the Golden Globes already happened. So we know the outcome of those. So we can talk about that. And then we can talk about the nominees for the Oscars.
3: I also like to preface this interesting point that I had only learned this year mainly from this Instagram account called Dumoy that's, like, insider. Um, yeah, it's, like, insider celebrity drama. Like, yeah, it's so interesting to read. And even, like, reading about, like, the PAs on, like, set and stuff, that to the Golden Globes, I don't want to say they're a hoax, but to be nominated, you it's heavily reliant on gifting, writing hand-lettered notes, which is... So bizarre. Um, I'm assuming this all because the board of people who select these nominees probably all really old white men. I haven't really looked at who they are, but that's just like what I've heard. Um, And that's so not reliant on what the people want or what, I guess, represents the film industry at all. And like recognition. You know, not that the Oscars defines what is good and what isn't. But I hope that each step they've made, like, points us in the direction of a, obviously, a more right and diverse future
2: for film. I mean, if the uh, awards committee wants handwritten letters and gifts, like, I'm really good at that. So maybe I'll get a Golden Globe.
3: Yeah, like, anybody can do that. Like, what about all the hard work that all these people have put in?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely did hear a little bit about that um, through the same account and just some articles that I read. I'm still not really sure what's going on, but I feel like in every sort of thing, there's a little bit of something that doesn't really feel or sit right with people who are not involved, and it isn't. Um, But I definitely do see the tiny little bit of diversity we have sprinkled throughout the nominations. Um, So... Especially, I think Andre Day won Best Actress for her portrayal of Billie Holiday. And so, you know, we have some diversity there. Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is, I feel like there's more than there have been in past years. And Chadwick Boseman won, I think. So, um, you know, there's a little progress with a little push. So I feel like as long as we keep pushing, we'll keep getting more progress with that especially since it's kind of been exposed i feel like they're gonna be a little better about it
0: yeah something i noticed between like the nominations for both awards is like the differences between like the awards for the golden globes versus the oscars i think one glaring difference is that menara was basically shut out for the golden globes it was just nominated for um best foreign language film, and I remember I was watching the Golden Globes, and when they announced the nominees for the award, they say the name of the movie and the country that it's from, and these are movies that are supposed to be maybe, like, distant because of, like, the connotation of the word foreign. Like, these are films that have been, like, foreignized to American audiences, so when they said, like, Minari USA that just like sounded kind of like ironic and kind of funny in a sad way to me. I was also very surprised that Mank got like the most nominations for the Oscars. (laughs) Um, I just personally like I feel like that movie was kind of like Oscar bait I guess and the Academy took the bait like Um, I have my own personal problems with like David Fincher, um, as well as Aaron Sorkin, who was nominated for Trial of the Chicago 7, just for like their creation of the social network, which portrays Asian women in a certain way, which um, I don't know if I should get into. (laughs) It made me so like disgusted (laughs) because of like the way they portrayed Asian women and especially like seeing like how beloved this movie is with like many audiences around the world i kind of like just have harbored this like hatred for that movie i get that mank would probably like appeal to the academy because of its connection to sinc and kane which is such a huge like piece of work in the industry
3: honestly if mank wins best film i will be so upset That not that i haven't seen it yet but it's just like there's so many other really great things that you could put up on uh pedestal not like a pedestal but um i also was thinking of this is that the grammys this year too were aimed to be more diverse i don't know if you guys watched those i only really did because of harry styles i didn't even watch the golden Globes. i didn't want to take the time i didn't really even care i was so disgusted
2: i definitely think especially as the social network is becoming more i feel like it just picked up a lot of momentum too for whatever reason very recently um and i feel like the subject of hypersexualizing <clears throat> of asian women in that movie is just kind of smoothed over and we're just like oh andrew garfield like in that one scene where he like walks up and smashes the laptop like okay we get it and you know i feel like people watch things and they're like that's wrong but you know I can't do anything about it so I'm just gonna you know I like I can't direct a movie I can't make a movie there are other things that you can do to make people more aware or push them into a corner and basically say hey like don't do that um and I feel as audiences of people who watch films it's might feel a little bit harder to do that but it's like doable and we see that in the push for diverse diversity and the award circuits this year so i definitely think that that's something that we should bring awareness to
0: yeah and thank god like that conversation is like starting now like how they're portrayed in um the film industry the western film industry it's sad that it took this long and it took like these like tragedies to happen for that to occur but i'm Glad and I'm, like, kind of surprised that people are now talking about it.
3: That's something that's always angered me as a young woman is that it's taken a long time for all these conversations to happen around intersectionality and the way we portray people and the way we treat people and how it permeates to our culture of everyday life. But what a time to be alive, honestly, sometimes as a young person is that in my mind, even though we go through such hardships is that I like to think that hopefully it only gets better from here and that when we have these hard conversations even like this podcast that it just puts it out there that there's room for change and even to go on topics of like making films for white Americans and how these portrays and like how a lot of maybe these nominations are maybe a little bit more sad or things like you know, Land that might be, make you really uncomfortable and hard to sit there for an hour and a half or something. But when we film movies like that, it opens up even more of a window of these hard conversations. And I love to see a happy, happy movie when it's like going back to like when La La Land almost won and they were so angered when Moonlight came up and won. I'm like, that was such... A stunning film. I feel like the last time, like, a quote happy film won was like in the year 2000 when like Shakespeare and Love won, which I was like, okay, like that was a fun movie, but it's not like revolutionary in any sorts.
2: I definitely think we'll get to nominating happy movies when there's time to do happy movies, when there's time to recognize, and I feel like it's going to be a long time for that to happen. And I was trying to draw like one thing that I liked so far I haven't seen all the Oscar nominations but the things that I recognize that they're all about is that they're all telling stories and I feel like we need to continue to tell stories and we t- we have stories of about Judas and the Black Messiah we have a story Minari we have like our stories need to be told like a more diverse group of stories need to be told because I feel like there's a chunk missing and you know you have kids watching these movies I f- feel like kids are really much more into pop culture than they ever were now and so they're seeing these things happen and kids who are black kids who are asian and kids who are hispanic they don't see things that have or tell their stories so i feel like with this we're sort of getting into that you know place where we are getting towards telling our stories Hey listener, Ethan the editor speaking. The rest of this podcast contains spoilers for the film Moxie. Turn back now if you haven't seen it, or if you're planning on seeing it.
1: Sort of bouncing off of the idea of telling stories, but also happy stories, and how women are portrayed in films. We can talk about Moxie, which we've all seen, and I was like kind of a little bit Like, I really liked the film overall, but, you know, there are some things about it I didn't like, which I kind of have to, like, put away when I think about this film. One problem that I had with this film was, or not problem, but, like, hesitation I had with this film was the portrayal of the, um, not only the Black woman in this film, but also the Asian American friend. I feel like what they were doing was they were trying to be woke, and then they were just going with the lowest hanging fruit, you know, like, uh, for example, with, um, I forget her name, but the girl who's, like, Latina and black, and she has long hair, and the, like, jock is, like, harassing her, and she's, like, kind of able to stand up to him, but I wish they delved a little deeper into the story, but I think it's also hard to do that when there's, she's not the main character, so this was definitely, like, you know a white feminist awakening that would not resonate only with like white audiences but definitely if you're like a young woman and you're really like I assume teenagers and this could be like sort of their feminist awakening film and empower them to want to do something
2: I definitely agree agree in the fact that the people of color in the movie were kind of like catalysts to starting this sort of revolution sort of thing um I think the motive of the movie was definitely like positive. It was sort of this awakening in a girl who, you know, just didn't really know how to stand up or be heard. Um, but I also just think, you know, you use these the people of color as stepping stones to try to or to start realizing um like what's really happening or like I feel like it takes the shove from the token POC character to kind of get you into that mindset to do something or to say something.
3: Uh yeah. I was totally thinking all those things when I was watching it. And I was almost hesitant to watching the movie at first. Um I wish that they had also gotten to more of a deep dive to the emotions of like her best friend too. And it, I don't know why it reminded me of, like, when Gilmore Girls put Lane Kim as, like, like super strict or whatever. Um, but this goes back to a thought that Lonnie brought up, is that more kids and teenagers are looking at these things in pop culture. And when I was watching it, it definitely felt like it was for maybe, like, a young, maybe even, like, a young white girl to realize these things. That, like, it's not just about her and like there's other people out there who have those problems like I wish that I had seen this movie when I was younger because I didn't really find my quote feminist voice until like I was older and like when I was in high school I was put into this like exclusive feminist club because I was seen as like a weird artist girl who may be a leader my principal was just like that principal and like I even though This film has a lot of problems. I feel like even if it's like quiet notions of pushing us in the right direction, that it helps us um, more intersexual. And I also loved how it touched on like the 90s feminist movement. I made a playlist called Moxie, and uh, I've like listened to the song Rebel Girl so many times since then. Um, I also like to say that Nico, what's his name? Nico Hidera, right? They originally were going to cast a white male instead of him which I thought that was super interesting because like why not make the cast more quote diverse and I feel like it brings a more interesting perspective when her boyfriend's not a white male
2: yeah for sure I I Nico Haraga he's anyways (laughs) he's great he's great but um I definitely think The one thing I feel like and I was just thinking about as you were speaking, I feel like the feminist awakening sort of thing kind of overshadowed a bunch of stories that I feel like could have been really um, could have added something to the story. Like there was um, I believe her name was Lucy who was the um, Afro Latina and then um, her best friend who's Asian American and then the two soccer um, players and then there was somebody who was transgender Like, I feel like it overshadowed a little bit too much for me, Um, just the stories of people that I think could have provided a lot of um, just more spice, more diversity, more um, good storytelling and awareness.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I feel like the movie is kind of meant to serve like this white female protagonist and how she overcomes like her hardships with shyness and conformity and i'm just wondering like like lucy and kiara and claudia and the disabled girl in the wheelchair like how do they feel about this movement and how does this movement serve them like how are they growing with this movement and um going back to what you said about like how her asian american friend is portrayed I feel like the film is making it seem like she can't, like, participate in feminism. Which isn't really the case. It's just that, like, it's just these generational, like, principles that are passed down onto her that are kind of holding her back from that. And it makes me wonder, like, how non-Asian viewers, like, feel about her character. Like, do they not like her because she comes off too timid or... Do they, like, sympathize with her, and can they understand her situation? Um, But that being said, I think I would have, like, loved this movie when I was, like, maybe 14, because um, I think that was the age I, like, really, like, got into feminism. Like, I would consider myself, like, having been a feminist, like, for the majority of my life, but... I think 14 was when I, like, really, like, got into it. Like, I had my own awakening. And I would, like, even listen to, like, Riot Girl bands, like, Bratmobile and Bikini Kill. Like, that was, like, literally my entire experience when I was 14. Like, yeah, I would listen to, like, Rebel Girl and I would, like, really feel it. So, like, I wouldn't, like, pay attention to, like, all these, like, flaws that are so obvious to me now like, I would just be like, oh, like, this film, like, is about, like, the riot girl movement or whatever, and it has, like, an Asian actress in it, and it has, like, all these, like, cool things in it, and, like, I feel like I really would have loved this if I was younger, um, so though I, like, find all these, like, like, obvious flaws with it now, I feel like it's important for maybe, like, younger girls to see, so I'm glad that, like, this film is like out there in the open for like these younger, like female audiences to see and to appreciate.
2: I definitely agree with that. Um, I do feel that I would have loved this. I feel like I needed this when I was 14 because I was still finding my little old way. Um, but I couldn't help but think when we were chatting about kind of how the minority characters in Moxie were a little bit overshadowed and because of that I can't help but think it feels a little bit performative just to have them there as props in the um in the movie and I feel like this goes with um a few other things but like the representation and just um like do we think people are just insert- inserted for just what's the word just to be performative because it's like Yeah, as, yeah, exactly, as their shadows, of shadows, their stories aren't really told.
3: Um, I'd like to say that, okay, number one, Moxie is based on, like, uh, I think partially a true story, based on a book, but when Amy Poehler directed this, I think she had all the best intentions, maybe, and, because she has a few other, like, I think she has, like, a, I think her charity's called, like, Amy's Girls or something, like, she... It's something she's been really passionate about. And I was reading about it because, ironically, and this can go into Transition conversation, how women directors are treated, like, people really kind of bashed Amy and, like, critics. Like, in no way, like, applaud her for even, like, attempting to make a movie like this for young girls. And she said that, like, she wishes she could have done more with intersectionality. Like, she wishes that she had more of a gateway and open to that. And I just thought it was so ironic that even though like Amy was in a sense like trying that they she had like these male critics like bashing her because it is more of, sort of like an indie style film. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you guys thoughts on that because like I feel like even when a woman director tries to create something, they have all these people constantly hounding on her like yeah, we can critique it and, it and something should be critiqued if it needs to be. But yeah, I just wish that Like, I hope that maybe next year, like, this gets some nominations for something. I don't know. I mean, with female directors,
1: there's a big trend, even in the Oscars, about them not having the same budgets as the other films nominated that are directed by men. And um, we can see this with this year's nominations, too, with Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao. It costs under $5 million. One Night in Miami, directed by Regina King, was... Um, budgeted at almost $17 and Promising Young Woman, so I think if, of course, like, Amy Poehler probably did have the best intentions, but when you don't have a budget that is maybe needed or, you know, preferred, it can be harder to flesh out ideas, whether that's, like, because of the time you have to shoot, because that's the time you have to write, and of course, like, there could have been problems with the source material in this, in Moxie, too, that I'm not aware because I didn't read the book.
3: Yeah, I really hope that in time, like, women can get more, not like a leg up, but the position that they want to be. And hopefully we continue to destruct, deconstruct the patriarchal male-run film industries. Even when I feel like it started to blossom back in the day with um, hashtag Oscar So White and even the Me Too movement um but i think it's really amazing that even when a woman director with a low budget can still create something so beautiful and i think that speaks volumes and i hope they can get more budget but even something like nomadland having like one real hired actor and all these other true stories of these people who are essentially nomads really can be moving and we should really really give women more of the platform cuz they're beautiful artists instead of like uh excuse me for my talk of like men making marvel movies over and over again that just seem the same like who cares about a new justice league cut i'm not gonna watch it four hours of what mind numbing action violence whatever is there another point of topic that anybody wants to bring up i don't know if i steered that in the wrong direction
2: so we talked a lot about the the characters in moxie how um especially the minority characters were kind of overshadowed but a lot of their stories were about, you know, struggling to fit in. And so that leads me to think about, like, do stories about minorities have to be about struggling? And um, is, you know, that's mostly what we see, but do they have to? And <clears throat> because we have mostly a white audience, is that like something that feels sort of forced or something that we feel needs to happen as um a person of color.
1: I think it was Viola Davis who brought this up in a speech once about how black women, they just don't have options a lot of times about roles that are happy, that show them in a maybe like a positive light and even show them being more than just a black woman. Like you're not just your race, you're not just your gender. What she was saying was a couple of years ago, but unfortunately it's still a big problem today for BIPOC women especially black women and with like there's just so few nominees of women as best directors but even fewer of women of color and I think it goes back to the Stephen Young quote about catering towards the white gaze even if you are not a white person you can feel like a part of that gaze because you're sort of trained in that way to look for this kind of story, and, um, not to say that you can't have, sort of, more than one type of gaze, with it from, coming from yourself, even, but, like, to, sort of, like, cater towards that white gaze, thinking about 12 Years a Slave, not saying that that film did that, but it got Oscar nominated, because it's, sort of, talking about struggles that black people have had, you know, it's, like, other films might not get nominated for that, if it's, like, not about a struggle so I think it's sad but I think right now we're like trying to transition out of that um sort of making films for a white gaze or making films about struggling but I definitely still see that happening and it feels like you can't escape it sometimes though
2: I so feel like we need to tell the stories I just feel like sometimes the stories are told by the wrong people it's just that like Especially when it comes to stories about people of color, I feel like they're just maybe not told in the right way or they're just directed by the wrong person. Like, there often involves trauma and then you have the story that overlays it and I feel like there's a missing connection to the story um, because you're not in that group of people and then the people who identify with the group of people that the film is about don't they don't resonate with the story and they end up just watching trauma and hardships that their people go through you see that a lot with movies about black struggles and there's I feel like whenever I watch those movies I feel a disconnect from the story but then I see these things that happened to like my ancestors long ago and it's just like well I just watched somebody got get like whipped for 20 minutes and I still really don't know where the, I don't feel a connection to the story and so I feel like the wrong people are telling the stories and I feel like that's where the sort of thing comes in where I feel like if more people of color were directing and writing there would be more movies There were, we would be able to make the movies about struggle but we'd be able to move on and make the movies about being happy or going through problems that you know, are more general than, you know, just being um, racially profiled or, you know, that sort of thing. Because I feel like those people are stuck on just writing about other people's problems instead of letting those people write about their problems. And then those people write about their happy moments or some like another story that might not have to be so heavy.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think first and foremost, I think film should capture all the multitudes of life. And I think that minority-centered films are not exception to that. I think struggling is inherently a part of life. So stories that involve struggling and hardships should be told and be portrayed, like, regardless of the people involved. Um, that being said, I do think that there is a tendency to associate, like, racial experiences solely with, like, these... Instances of like suffering and hardship. I think perhaps like the white gaze kind of demands suffering from films that are focused on minorities and not just the white gaze, but also like the heteronormative gaze and the patriarchal gaze. And I think that the main thing that the Western film industry has to work on is incorporating like minority like writers and filmmakers and producers and Like, even, like, people who do casting and do, like, costume design and makeup. Like, I think it starts there. Like, it starts within the production of the film and the creation and, like, realization of the story. And I don't think, like, just including, like, minority actors is not enough. Like, it just isn't. And I think this movie that came out in 2019 called Waves is a good example of this. Um, it has like, a very like, diverse cast, but it's written and directed by a white man. And as a result, the story kind of falls flat. And it, like, I personally like, didn't find it very effective. And I think another good example is um, Crash from 2005, which won Best Picture, I think, that year. And it tries to tell this story about like, racial tensions, but it's also written and directed by white men and it definitely shows. So I think the industry needs to start within like the behind the scenes stuff like of film. Like it needs to incorporate minorities in that process and not just like on the surface.
3: Sometimes I wish I could just like go and shake someone's head who's like a big wig in Hollywood. Like, why? Like, why can't you see that you have to incorporate other people than just you? Like, can you just stop thinking about you? And like, that's another thing about Hollywood is that the whole like men superior complex still permeates that too. And even when we see things like we were talking about the Star Women's Writing Class, like even people who are lesbian or like who might be gay don't even have like a happy love story film like to look at and I was thinking about this when I was like watching holiday that one movie with um oh my gosh I can't remember the actor's names I'm yeah okay and um and I really hope that one day we can have stories that are just like like a rom-com that can make you laugh maybe make you cry a little bit but like when if we have an actual like purse of code directing a film and like writing it and like speaking to these voices it's really important for someone maybe who doesn't have like a diverse town to like watch these films and feel and experience what someone else may go through because that's what we see a lot of people today just can't think of anybody else other than themselves and We have a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't want to watch a movie about, like, a gay man, like, falling in love with another, like, gay man. Or I don't want to watch, like, what, like, a black person struggles with. And it's like, and that's really harmful to the industry. But it only happens from within, from when we crack the door open to what really needs to happen. And I hope, and I hope that we can have, like... I don't want to say happy stories. I I love to watch a moving sad movie. Lately, it's been hard for me to watch sadder films because life is really strange and different right now. Um but those stories are also so important and they're so important to document um what those emotions are. It's like if you go to an art museum and you see a really older painting that can make you cry. I'd love to like go back and watch movies that make me incredibly sad just so we feel these things, but people need to realize that these people who struggle from issues that are suppressing them can also have happiness, are not just like that all the time. And some people just have such a a boxed-in interpretation, white people do, of what other people's lives are like.
1: Um, Okay, so the problem with... I mean, one thing I liked about... Some of the Oscar and Golden Globe nominations was um, the film One Night in Miami because Regina King and the writer who is a black man, um, I think they did a good job with this script as well as like making the film because it has this balance of giving the historical context of like um, the 70s, I believe, and it acknowledges wh- what black people were going through at the time but it's also really interesting because it's from this sort of glamorous what you think is a glamorous perspective because these are four or five men who are very famous and it's a fictional encounter in between them so I think it's exciting that like these people can play these iconic roles and in my opinion it did a really good job of bringing up like their different perspectives on sort of even them like catering towards white people in the 70s i think um and they all had different perspectives on it which is really important because it's not just one um experience as a black man it, it's like black experiences different types of experiences for people of color too so i really liked that film and it was so like when they were just talking it was so stripped down the script was so good uh, so if any of you watch that like if you haven't watched it I would definitely recommend watching it and hearing their different perspectives
2: from what I saw it was definitely I only saw a piece of it in the beginning I never finished it and I will but um what I saw of it was pretty good I can't wait to watch the rest of it
1: Leslie Oram Jr. did such a good job on him I was like oh my god okay yeah he's so good in that movie and even um The guy that plays Archie from the miniseries Hollywood, uh, he's like in it for a cameo, and I love Hollywood. I know it's like, you know, revisionist history, trying to be woke, but, you know, aside from its sort of like performative wokeness,
3: it just feels so good to watch. I loved Hollywood. I've like binged it in one day. Well, I don't don't know if I still say it. I did like it. I'd have to rewatch it to know that I loved it because I binged it in one day whenever it came out. I also forgot to ask you guys, I don't know if anybody saw this. I know everybody was really mad that Emily in Paris got nominated for so many. Because the thing about Golden Globes, it's important. It should needs to be fixed. It's important to represent TV shows. His Oscar like doesn't represent TV shows at all. Um, and I don't think we watched this one movie about the black woman who suffered from rape, I think. I didn't watch it. I, I can't watch TV shows like that. It makes me so incredibly sad. But versus a show like that, that represents such hardship that... Like, we need to, to like, see and tell and didn't get nominated for anything versus Emily in Paris is like, oh, ha, 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 I'm an influencer in Paris, you know, not caring about Brazilian people, just doing my white thing. I mean, for TV shows, we do have
1: Emmys, and that's where, like, my preference lies in watching content in comparison to movies, because I feel like you can get more deep into shows, um... You can get more deep into character stories, and I prefer sort of diving deep into one or two people's stories rather than uh, what well, kind of what Minari did, which was not focus on one character specifically. They talked about a family portrait, rather.
2: Hello again, listener. This last section of the podcast contains spoilers for the movie Sound of Metal. If you haven't seen it, or you plan on seeing it, you know what to do.
1: So to kind of just go off of like which Oscar nomination movies I really liked, um, I really like Sound of Metal because it did focus on one person's experience and even expanding outside of race and gender, but also the main character is deaf. Like that is a story I haven't seen. And when Riz Ahmed, who is the main character in the movie, he... Was talking to Stephen Yun on like Hollywood Reporter or something. <laughs> they had a conversation or whatever it's called, um, and Stephen Yun was saying how deaf people think. I mean, sorry, Riz Ahmed was saying that deaf people think people not not deaf people are emotionally repressed because they're hiding behind words. Whereas when you're using ASL, you have to use your whole body, and I saw that a lot through the film and like that film was so amazing like definitely crushed me definitely made me very sad but the fact that Riz Ahmed gets roles that are not necessarily like meant for a brown guy or a muslim guy all the time he has played like brown men before but um that's also really really amazing and inspiring to see that you can sort of go beyond what just people see you as
2: i so agree with that i um was I really enjoyed him in sound of metal, and like I said it it broke my heart. I was so empty i I still am I don't know if I'll recover, but um, I definitely think even being in something like a metal group that's just not something that's you know in the media like that's not something you see every day, and I feel like it's definitely pulled it a little bit out of the box um but yeah, the sound of metal was definitely one of my favorites. I still have a few to watch, but so far it's, like, Judas and the Black Messiah, and then Chicago 7's right next to it, then The Sound of Metal, and then I forget, like, what else? Oh, I, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to talk about Sound of Metal as well, because I loved it as well. I think Riz Ahmed, um, his fear and frustration come across so genuine, <laughs> and I can only imagine, like, how it would be to watch this in a theater. Because sound matters so much in this movie. Like the sound design matters so much. And that's reasonable. And like, even like in the beginning, like the clattering of like the plates and like his breathing while he's doing like pushups and like the motors of the RV, they're all like amplified because like these are like the sounds that like fill his life and are taken from him and music is also so important in the movie like the songs within like the diegetic world of the movie come across so like crisp and clear in the beginning and um there's one point in the film like he is sitting like doing this hearing test and the um person who's like administering the test is like he says the words um, life and team. <laughs> and um, he, like the main character, Ruben, he doesn't hear these words and he doesn't respond. And for some reason, that moment, like while watching that, that moment, like appeared to me as something that might be like intentional. and might be important. And I think ultimately it is because the importance of, like, being in a team and being, like, in a community, like, is, um, emphasized throughout the film, like, as he, like, goes through the motions of, like, being used to being, like, deaf, deaf, (laughs) and, um, the film is ultimately about, like, how life isn't fair, and life, like, will never be fair, but it will also go on, like, Like, life is unforgiving, but it just goes on. (laughs) And I think it's... That's an idea that the film really highlights in. How, like, you can find these, like, moments of beauty within life, even though life is so, like, harsh.
1: It's... I really liked how, throughout the film, you see him struggling, and he's struggling to accept that he's deaf. He's really keen on getting... <clears throat> keen on getting that surgery to help him hear, but even when he gets it, he's not, he prefers to be deaf. So I thought that was really a beautiful ending. And the scene that impacted me the most was when he sees Lou, his girlfriend, again, and they're just talking as if everything should be normal, and he's like, It's okay. Like that scene really, really got to me where he's totally accepted that he's moving on with his life, not that she's leaving him behind. I thought that was the most beautiful scene, and i it goes back to me liking these films that are about like
0: one person or two people's relationship right, um, okay, if we're gonna get into like spoiling the film, I wanted to bring up like um there's a moment where uh. I forgot the character's name, but he's the guy that, like, runs the community, like, of deaf people, but he tells Ruben, like, there are, like, these moments of stillness that are so important, like, in a deaf person's life, and this is, like, right after he got the surgery, and, like, he doesn't, Ruben doesn't know what, like, he's talking about, and he kind of, like, dismisses him, and he leaves, and then just at the end, he finds that moment of stillness. And I I just think that's so, like... It just wraps it all up, really.
2: Yes, I remember that moment. And I don't know what told me to wear headphones I didn't know what it was about before I started watching it. But I heard people talk about it. And I was wearing headphones, which I think definitely helped a lot with when I was watching throughout the movie. But that last moment, I was like, oh my god, like uh yeah that that moment of stillness and it was it was amazing and i feel like this is our this is i was thinking about it this is our sort of um thing about we have a movie that isn't really about a struggle with race it is still about a marginalized community i feel cuz mostly it's about being deaf or becoming deaf but i think this is like it doesn't really have anything to do with the color of his skin Or a struggle in that way. But it's still telling a story. Um, And I think. I mean I'm, I'm not deaf. I don't know anybody who is. Or yeah I don't know anybody who is. But I think being someone who's not. I feel like it gave an interesting portrayal. Of somebody losing something. That meant so much to them. That was literally their life.
1: Building off of Lonnie's point about how this is not a story about race, it's about a different type of struggle, I think Riz Ahmed can sort of be white passing depending on the context. So even though I'm really excited to see like a brown, a South Asian person in the best actor category, it's like, yeah, he has light skin and he can often pass for a white person. But like he also has these struggles, I think, of... Um, having, like, a Muslim name, um, and that whole, like, stereotypes that go with that. So it's like a, I think he's, like, sort of lucky in a way that he can play different characters that are not just um, about his race. But it's always exciting to me when people also get cast in roles that doesn't have to do with their race, because they are more than just that. And I think the last film I want to talk about was Minari. I watched it last night. Um, Jennifer, do you want to talk about any specific part about it to kick off this part of the conversation? Because I think only you and I watched
0: it. So I think, like at its core, Minari is definitely like an American story, and I think the concept of like attempting to construct your own success and like maybe failing to do that like once or twice or like several times and maintaining like perseverance like despite all those failed attempts i think is a quintessential american narrative and i often hear the film being promoted as like a story about the american dream um and it doesn't glorify this idea of the american dream it more so highlights like the skepticism like surrounding it especially within Asian families who like integrate into American culture. And I personally don't really believe in the American dream as an attainable concept, but I know I can relate to this film because of like perhaps the possibility of like pessimism that it evokes. And I know that my own family can relate to it. And I say this as like a fair-skinned East Asian person who was like born and raised in America and in a majority white county in New York. So I understand that my racial experience will differentiate from that of other Asian ethnic groups in America. But I believe that Minari is universal at its heart and it embodies like all of these emotions connected to assimilation and learning how to appreciate one's own culture. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I love Minari, and I think Minari kind of by itself serves, like, its own purpose, and it effectively told its own story. So I think the fact that it exists at all is great, and I think the fact that it got, like, recognition and nominations, like, in these awards, like, is even greater
1: I appreciated how it showed Asian Americans in a working class background because we often don't see that, Um, which shows like Kim's Convenience. I like how it's a sitcom. So you get that feel good vibe, unfortunately has been canceled and I'm so sad, but it shows another working class um, Korean American or Korean Canadian family. And I think it's nice to have that sitcom format. So it's not so heavy. You can watch it casually right? And then we have Minari, which is definitely more heavy, and also uh, a, a Korean-American family in the 80s, which, like, I felt like this movie was uncomfortably realistic in a, in a good way, where I was like, oh, if I was, like, born in a different decade, and if I didn't live in an area with lots of other people of color, this is what my life could have been like. It's scary how, you know, it portrayed a lot of things, like, very realistically, and I thought the mom and the dad, their acting was amazing, and I just love how they were, like, constantly at odds with each other. um, Yeah, I, I think this movie definitely, like, struck a chord, not only with me, but also with a lot of people, um about this, like, immigrant experience, about growing up in a place where you feel like you may not belong, and I also want to talk about this idea of letting go of perfect representation like this story isn't going to represent everyone um sure it has that asian american political identity attached to it but i think it's not only meant for asian americans and that for a lot of different people and once we let go of this idea of representing ourselves perfectly or representing women perfectly representing any type of person perfectly and we just have more films and more media about these people then finally we'll get to this point where we're not struck on this idea of is this a- accurate is this an accurate version of my experience because not every story is going to represent you
3: i would say i just started watching kim's convenience right before they said they were gonna close out and i thought it was really nice how like we could have like a sitcom like surrounding someone that's just like not white and i i thought the show was really funny and I really loved how you brought up, Perona that it doesn't have to represent everybody. Um, I, it's just, like, interesting. But hopefully we can get to the point where we can make movies with different people that aren't just white people that don't have to necessarily represent.
2: I think we definitely did a, a good job of just chatting about, you know, what's kind of going on especially during the awards circuit and I think we gave a unique perspective being all women and femme presenting and just by our ethnic backgrounds by giving certain just insights on how we feel about it and how we feel like it could be further represented and I definitely think like we're the voices that's gonna push forward the new stories and continue to work our way towards feeling better about making those happy stories and making sure that it's us telling those stories
1: I briefly wanted to mention um the half of it which is written and directed by Alice Wu because we were talking about how queer people are often don't get movies with happy endings and are just not represented I don't again like accurately is a difficult word to say but represented in a way where they feel like their story is accurate um I know I'm sort of contradicting myself from before because there's this balance of like accurate and having lots of different stories but that story was amazing and if I was nominating someone if I was nominating films for the Oscars that film definitely deserves an Oscar I know it seems like just another teen comedy romance movie and I think there's problems with categorizing films as trick flicks because then people don't think they're good but that movie was like actually made me cry made me feel so much and it deserves an oscar in my opinion
3: can we also talk about Well, not talk about i'll just mention it that um women our age we taught us our women's class um are so underrepresented too like we see like coming of age stories in high school but we don't see like women in college struggling and i hope that one day we can have something relatable like that I also we never really talk about Nomadland, and there's only like I mean it's a beautiful movie, but there's only like two like dissect. But I was reading up last night, and I'm like once well, person that, like Google's everything while I'm watching a movie. I like to know all the things, and one of the Condé Nast said like, um "Chloe is Chloe Zhao. Is my, am I saying that right? Um, Chloe Zhao's movie is like a love letter to like American landscape." And I'm like, no, it's not like sure the movie is beautiful but did you miss the whole point like yes we can take a step back but maybe you could say like hey don't fall into corporate america or like all these struggles and hardships that these people faced in the recession and like found beauty being a nomad even though it was really really heckin hard sometimes but like that that movie i i, I did watch it on my phone and i regret not having the time to go to theater see because it was, it is in theater. Like, in my town, we have, like, one theater that, like, no one goes to, um, and I, maybe I'll have to do that, like, when I get back home. Um, But that movie in itself was so still, and I really loved that it was nominated for Best Picture, too, because there isn't, sometimes in American movies, things need to be so loud. Like, there has to be a constant thing going on for you to, like be gripped I was even talking about this last week when I watched the documentary show which is 10 hours long and it's focused on like holocaust survivors in the 80s and there's moments where there's just nature that you're just looking at and like you're looking at like you know these old sites that are just overgrown by nature and it's almost like in nomad land where you're just like watching her like being still like looking at this like dinosaur figurine that giant dinosaur is like the sun setting and it's like saying that oh the nature and show us beautiful but let's just like disregard everything else that's going on um but yeah i feel like no wide lane was important in representing this culture because even if it was filmed in like 2018 it's so prevalent now because I've seen, like, there is a glorified van life, but I follow a few people on TikTok who, like, had didn't have, like, any other option right now, and they're, like, out of jobs, and, like, sometimes their life in a van is really hard, but sometimes it's really beautiful that they, they like, don't have anywhere to shower right now, but, like, sometimes they get to, like, bathe in a river, and it's, even though it's hard, it can be really fun. I don't know if you guys had any points to add into that, and I was, like, a little tidbit, but also, like, even though Chloe, like, did, I didn't, like, the cast wasn't, like, truly diverse in Nomadland, but, like, a lot of the people in Nomadland were actually, like, that's what they were. I think Francis was the only person who was a true actor.
0: Yeah, I think Nomadland's success kind of reinforces the fact that, like, minority filmmakers should not feel limited to only, like, portraying stories centered around, like, characters that reflect their identity. Um, I think Brokeback Mountain is also a good example of this. Like, it was directed by Ang Lee, and he's a Taiwanese filmmaker. And the film is pretty much only about, like, white characters. It's, like, a romance between, like, two white American men. And Nomadland also, like, portrays pretty much only white characters, as I remember. And... I mean, both of these movies were clearly, like, hits. Like, they were very effective. So, yeah, I think um, minority filmmakers should tell the stories they want to tell, simply. Um, And I want to bring up, like, two things that I would nominate. Um, Charlotte, you were talking about how, like, films often implement, like, these, like, like gimmicks and whatnot. And um one film I thought was snubbed was Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It's directed by Eliza Hitman. And I was intrigued by like this understated, like reflective atmosphere of the film. And it kind of reminded me of like European styles of filmmaking. And I mean, I don't wanna sound too pretentious, but like um there's this movie called L'Enfant which is directed by um, the Darden brothers. And they're like this Belgian filmmaking duo. And that film kind of relies on the actors' expressions and their actions more than like dialogue and usage of music and whatnot. And I think that American filmmaking tends to be kind of dialogue heavy, gimmick heavy, and relies on like a lot of like non-diegetic music. And I'm not saying that a film can't be strong with like, these things, because they certainly can, but often I feel like American films depend on that frequently, so I just think that Never Rarely Sometimes Always made me, like, hopeful that this more understated style of filmmaking, this more, like, subdued tone would be, um, more, like, implemented more often within the American film industry, and, um, another thing I, like, want you guys to hear me out. <laughs> um but like I think Pete Davidson is like a great actor, like genuinely. And I think his performances in um The King of Saturn Island as well as um the other one, Big Time Adolescence, I think he genuinely does like a great job. Like he is an effective drama actor. Um yeah, so I would totally like nominate him. I mean, I um I'll always defend his acting abilities. Yeah, I
2: think I think he's good too. I don't have anything really against Pete Davidson. When I saw Big Time Adolescence, and when I saw King, King of Staten Island, I really, really enjoyed him in. I feel like Judd Apatow, Apatow, Apatow has a way of just always making this recycled man-child, never-left-his-house character which I feel like he kind of got sucked into that, but I still feel like even within the constraints of that role, he did a very good job, especially in King of Staten Island. Like, I really enjoyed that.
1: Okay, my last thought, I thought I didn't have anything else, but my last thought is I wanted to go back to Moxie because we didn't mention this in person today, but we were all swooning over Nico Haragua last night, right? And we were kind of talking about how his character is like sort of this... um, like, really easy way to make, like, women like him or, like, girls, like, really admire that character is he does the bare minimum to sort of be a feminist. And I think his character, like, does the bare minimum, but he's doing, like, bare minimum plus two, you know, a little bit above it. But it was also, like, I haven't seen men being portrayed in that way. And it sucks that this, like, character was revolutionary in my perspective, but I hope to see more characters like that and them actually being, like, more than just a prop for the, like, women to, like, look at, but for them to actually, like, do more, Um which I think
0: could be fleshed out in future films. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it's such a small thing, but I think when he, like, wrote her name, like, on his arm at the end, I thought that was so hot. Like, I, like, I, like, I mean, I can't lie. And um especially, like, Because the film introduced that, like, this very, like, traditional, like, picturesque, um, like, white guy who, like, kind of gave me, like, Tucker Carlson vibes. Like, I thought he was going to be, like, portrayed as this, like, great love interest. But, like, that wasn't, that obviously wasn't the case. So I was impressed with, like, how the film kind of, like... Set up these two male characters and how, like, their stories kind of develop throughout the film.
3: Yeah, I really loved that I mean, obviously, I hope one day that we don't have to ask people to the bare minimum. I still haven't had a boyfriend like that. LOL. But one thing about Nico's characters that, that they incorporate, the reason why he was someone like that is because he grew up with three sisters. But I guess I'd like to see another film maybe sometime that like he doesn't have to grow up with women he can still be passionate about women you know um but I think that even though it is a bare minimum it's a portrayal that we need to do this we need to do this for young men this is how we're gonna hopefully solve some of these awful problems that still go on This episode
1: of the T of FIT was produced by me, Prerna.
0: Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Our cover art is by Jenny Keating, and our theme music is by M-Y-S-M for thematic. The T
1: of FIT is a new show, so please help us get the word out by recommending this episode to your friends. You can also support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.
3: You can email us your suggestions and comments at w27-newspaper at fitnyc.edu or DM us on our Instagram at
0: w27newspaper on what you'd like to hear us chat about next. And please take a look at W-27's first Spring 2021 issue, A Year of Reflection, where you can find articles authored by all of us on the fear of being perceived,
2: BSU goes back to the present,
1: on loving the FIT experience, and reviewing the to all the boys series
2: everything we just mentioned will be in the show notes
1: we'll see you next time with a fresh brewed cup of tea i'm jennifer i'm charlotte i'm lonnie and i'm Prerna. thanks for joining us until next time keep spilling the tea